Welcome, Orchard Hills. Um, that was not a strange, ethereal voice from somewhere else. Um, <laughs> we usually uh, have the outdoor service pray to close our worship time to kind of connect our two services. So if you didn't know, during the 11 o'clock, we also have people worshiping outside because um, we've been running out of room in here. So um, welcome to everybody outside. Welcome to everybody in the room and those who are watching online. We're really glad that you're worshiping with us today, that we're going to get to open the Word of God together. Um, my name's Sutton Wirt, and I'm the community care pastor here, and I'm excited to get to continue our, our fall series with you today um, called Made for God, Identity, Gender, and Sex. Um, last week, Scott uh, did a great job setting up what is a difficult topic. You know, there's a lot of of high tension around this topic in our world today. And so Scott did a beautiful job of just um, bringing it back to the Lord um, and who he is. And so what he said is that we are made in the image of God. That's what we as Christians believe, um, that we're made in God's image. And so we, that means that we cannot know who we are unless we know who God is. We can't know who we are unless we know who God is because we were made in his image. We were made to reflect him. And so that's going to be very important as we continue through this conversation. Um, and then Scott also laid some ground rules, kind of some uh, rules of engagement, you might say, um, of how we're going to go about these messages. And, and there's four things that he mentioned. The first is this. We're going to approach this from a biblical perspective. Um, so we are, if the Bible is not your uh, authority or, or what you're basing your beliefs off of, then we're probably going to disagree a little bit. Um, but we're going to stick to the Bible. We're not going to preach our opinions. We're going to preach the word. Uh, that's our plumb line. That's our authority. Uh, that is what is going to direct our lives. We're going to conform ourselves to this, not tell it to conform to us. The second thing is that this is not about politics. This is about people. Uh, right now in our country, there's a lot of tension um, and, and issues of sexuality often divide people on political lines. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about those who are often caught in the middle, people like you and me who um, experience brokenness in all kinds of ways. And so one of the, our main premises is that we believe that all of us, every single one of us, are sexually broken. All of us have some version of sexual brokenness that we need the Lord to heal us from. We can't fix it ourselves. And so we are, are talking uh, not in an us versus them way. That's not going to be the tone. Um, but we are saying this is about all of us, all of us who need the Lord's grace and healing in our lives. Um, the third thing is that we hope to be like Jesus in these conversations, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 says Jesus came full of grace and truth. Not a little bit of both, not some kind of balance, but full of both grace and truth, and we want to be the same. Uh, and then finally, fourth and finally, Tuesday evenings, right here in the sanctuary, 7 p.m., we'll be gathering together to have conversations around these issues. We don't want this to be a one-sided thing. Uh, we want to hear from you and the things that you've seen and that you're struggling with. Um, and so we had a great conversation here this last Tuesday, uh, and we're going to do that again, 7 p.m., so we would love for you to join us. Well, today we are going to be talking about the topic of gender, um, what it is and why God made us the way that he did. Um, and through our time today, I hope to communicate um, clarity and compassion around what has, has often been a hard and confusing conversation. So we hope to bring some clarity and lots of compassion. Uh, 
Um, so let's pray, and then we'll pick up where we left off in, in Genesis 1 last week. Well, Lord Jesus, you are the King, the Lord of creation. All things were created through you and for you. You are the purpose behind our lives and the way that you've made us and designed us. You are the goal of our lives, and we want to live for you um, and honor you in all that we do. So, Lord, would you speak to us now? Um, Would you open our hearts? Uh, Would you minister your grace and truth to us? Um, We want to know you better, Lord. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Um, Let's see here. So, the beginning of history, the beginning of of this book, starts with God. Scott pointed that out last week. Um, It starts with God and God alone. He is the subject of the first sentence of this book, and he will remain the subject throughout. The Bible is first and foremost a book about God before it's a book about us. And so if we want to understand who we are, then we have to understand who God is. He is outside of space and time and matter, and yet in the first chapter of Genesis, we see him create all those things. He is the origin and the goal, the purpose of every created thing. And so as you walk through Genesis 1, it's the days of creation, and and you see God create this. He speaks, and this comes into being. He speaks, and that comes into being. He makes it all by the word of his mouth. And then on day six, um, God creates humankind, the crown of creation, unlike plants, unlike animals, unlike any other created thing. Mankind is made in the image of God, the image of God. So let's look at this together in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Scott talked last week about how that's the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And let them, humans, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So, and this is key, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, maybe at face value, that that last statement doesn't seem very significant. Um, But friends, the implications of that one clause, that that God created them, male and female, are profound. To be made in God's image means to be like him and to represent him to the world. And rather than, than merely create one kind of person to reflect himself, God decided to create two kinds of people, male and female. And so that means that that man does not represent God by himself. That woman does not represent God by herself, but that together they represent who God is to the world. Together we image God as male and as female. Now, this is not to say that God himself is male or female. The Bible says that he's spirit in his essence, so he is above those created categories. Um, But it does mean a number of things, and here's a couple. First this, it means that we represent God through relationship that we were made for relationship. Christopher, Christopher Ewan says it this way in his book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. He says, The inherent relationality and fellowship within the Godhead, within the Trinity, are reflected in the inherent relationality and fellowship 
within humankind, within people. So that means that just as God exists in this harmonious, life-giving relationship of love in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, so he has made us not to be sufficient on our own, but to need each other. For men and women to need to live in relationship and community with each other in order to thrive. We were made to represent God in relationship, and male and female shows us that. And here's the second thing it means. Male and female are not optional or interchangeable categories, but rather they are an integral and essential part of how God created us. Friends, this is where the rubber meets the road for us today. Rather than operating on the assumed biblical worldview that that God made us male and female by design, In our culture today, the categories of male and female instead have become a customizable part of our identity, which we believe that we can change at will. How has this happened? Well, I'll spare you the history lesson, although it's really interesting, um, and I'd love to talk to you about it if you want to hear. Um, But really, for hundreds of years now, modern Western culture has been rejecting any sense of submitting to tradition or any kind of outside or external value in favor of the individual. The individual person being enough and discovering themselves on their own. We are now at the point um, where it is not just frowned upon, but it's actually considered unethical to suggest that someone needs to conform to some kind of outside standard. Instead, our movies and our books and our songs are all telling us to look inside, to look to ourselves, that the greatest meaning and purpose in life is to look inside and find your most authentic self and be that whatever that is. That is what our culture is telling us today. And this has invaded every part of our lives, including and really especially our gender and our sexuality. So next week, we're going to talk about the way that we live out our sexuality and what that means. And today, we're just focusing on gender. So it used to be that the word sex and gender meant the same thing, uh, but they don't anymore. As early as the 1960s, those words began to be used in different ways. And so now we would say that biological sex refers to whether you have a penis or a vagina. But the word gender refers to the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. And even more specifically now, we hear the term gender identity, which refers to one's internal sense of self as male, female, both, or neither. So you've got biological sex, but then you've got gender identity, this internal sense of what gender you are. And in our world today and in our community and valley, more and more people are experiencing um, an incongruity between those things, a sense of conflict between their biological sex and their gender identity, their their internal sense of self. Um, And those who experience this incongruence or disconnect um, have come to be referred to as transgender. Now, the the term transgender is actually a really big um, umbrella term that is used for anyone experiencing any level or kind um, of what the the DSM refers to as gender dysphoria. 
Um, the DSM is the diagnostic manual that psychologists use to diagnose general um, mental disorders. Um, and this one is gender dysphoria, that internal sense of conflict between your biological sex and your gender identity. This could be on the one side, perhaps a guy who just doesn't feel very masculine and doesn't feel right in his body. But it, it could, on the other side, be someone who experiences crippling um, and really life-inhibiting gender dysphoria. Um, and I think that it is so important that we grow in compassion, uh, just like Jesus would uh, and does for those who are hurting and suffering in this way. Um, and so I'd like to read just a couple descriptions uh, from people who've experienced gender dysphoria and how they describe that experience. This person says, The piercing to the heart feeling, when you feel like every single person in the room is staring at you, like your heart is ripped open and they're just picking at the pieces. This may sound pretty harsh to someone who's never experienced gender dysphoria. However, for me, it happens in some degree almost every time I'm out in public places with people around me. It also happens before I get ready to go out, and this has become such a battle. Fighting just to leave my house, and by the time I've fought for hours at a time, I'm exhausted and broken. I feel inadequate, broken, and just want to disappear. Here's another person's experience of gender dysphoria. My elect, uh, sorry, an electric current through my body that caused my joints to ache, my stomach to turn, my hands to shake, and nausea in the most severe moments of dysphoria. Laying in bed at night, it almost felt that the electric circuits in my body didn't quite match up, like cramming two wrong puzzle pieces together. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but these experiences sound terrible. Um, they sound like something that I would not wish upon anyone at all. Uh, and yet that is what people all over our world are experiencing today. And maybe even some of you here are experiencing this today. In addition to this, we're also witnessing what psychologists have called an outbreak of rapid onset gender dysphoria. Uh, this is a phenomenon that's largely presenting in female teenagers who experience some level of gender incongruence quickly determine that transition is necessary, transition, but then regret that decision, and oftentimes, a few years later, detransition. Now, this is a lot. Maybe a little more than you bargained for at church today. But we believe that the Bible speaks to these things. Uh, and so I'd like to lead us to a biblical conclusion of grace and truth. We'll start with the truth. The funda fundamental question here is whether um, a person, for a person who experiences gender dysphoria, what determines who they are? What determines who they are? Right now, our culture is saying psychology, that internal sense of self, that that is the, the most true thing about them. That's what determines who they are. And really, that shouldn't surprise us. We've been preaching that message for decades and decades now. Be true to yourself. Be your authentic self. Figure out who you are. Look inside. Look to your heart. That's who you are. That's what our world continues to say. But for Christians, and as Christians, we uh, believe instead that theology and biology determine who people are. That God made us male and female, and our biological sex is not an accident, but a good part of the way that God created us. And theologically, we believe that God is the one who has the power to determine who we are. 
that we don't get to decide for ourselves our identity, that it's not a customizable part of us. It's not something that's even achieved or earned, but it's something that's given, that God gives us our identity. He says who we are. Only he can tell us who we are. But we also acknowledge this, and this is the other side of the the truth coin, that our bodies and therefore our gender, while good creations, have been horribly marred and broken through the fall, through sin coming into the world, through our first parents, Adam and Eve. So let's look back at Genesis chapter 2. In chapter 2, we see a retelling of the creation of man and woman. And so... um, In the first chapter, you've got this kind of high-level overview. God makes men and women. In the second chapter, um, you see God make the man first. Um, He makes the man. He says, you are to work and to keep the garden. Um, And he tells the man, but don't eat from the fruit of this one tree. That's all that I ask of you. Trust me. And then God, out of the man, creates the woman, someone who is like him, but, but corresponding to him. Um, it says a helper fit for him. And so men and women have these different roles, these different responsibilities, and yet they work together. They are of equal value, but they are interdependent upon each other. They need one another, just like we need the Lord. But then notice this, at the, at the very last verse of the chapter in Genesis 2, 25. It says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and were not ashamed. Isn't that incredible? They had bodies that were completely exposed, and yet they felt no sense that something was off or wrong or ugly or uncomfortable or dirty. They were confident and secure in their identity. They were secure in their relationship with each other and with God, and they were secure in their bodies. But then, as you know, the serpent comes, and he tempts them. And the first words out of the serpent's mouth in Scripture are, Did God really say? Did God really say? Friends, the serpent is still saying that today. And in getting Adam and Eve to question whether God's way is best, he convinced them that going their way was best, that redefining truth on their own terms was what was best. And that day they took of the fruit, they ate it, and that was sin, rebellion against God. And that day the world broke. Their sin plunged them and us into a horrible reality. Our relationships with God and with each other became fractured, as did our relationships with our bodies. Now notice this, what it says in Genesis 3, 7. This is after they've eaten the fruit. It says this, Their eyes, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. When sin first enters the world, Adam and Eve feel it in their bodies. And so really, this is where gender dysphoria began. This is where the feeling of not being right in our own skin began. This is where we began to resent our bodies and to rebel against the bounds that God has put upon us as his creatures who are made in his image as male and female. 
And so to look out on the world and to see people who are ill at ease in their bodies, to feel in ourselves a a disgust or a self-hatred or a loathing of our own body should not surprise us. This is what we believe about the story of the world and what has happened to us. And since the beginning of time, we have continued over and over to look for fig leaves to hide ourselves with to look for some kind of fig leaf to cover the shame of our nakedness and our brokenness. Every generation has its fig leaves. We keep looking for something that the world and the enemy promises. This is going to make you feel better. This is going to give you peace. This is going to give you life. And it doesn't work, and it's never worked. That is the painful but very real truth. We are broken and in need of covering. And that's where grace comes in. So a little later in chapter 3, verse 21, um, God has come to the man and woman and to the serpent, and he's pronounced judgment. There are consequences for sin. But then in verse 21, it says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. The Lord clothes them in their nakedness. He does not leave them naked and ashamed, but he, make, he, God himself, makes clothes for them and covers them. Isn't that beautiful? And friends, that is a perfect picture of exactly what Jesus will later do in the gospel. The good news that he came as the perfect image of God. What you and I failed to be, Jesus was that perfect image of God. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death in your place. And he rose so that you could have life, so that you could be covered, so that your sin could be covered and you could walk now not in your own brokenness and your own self-righteousness, but in his righteousness. Isaiah says that what Jesus came to do is to cover us in a robe of righteousness. Isn't that good news? And Paul tells us that the hope that we have in Jesus is not just the salvation of our souls, but it's the salvation of our bodies. We say this every week in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body. The good news of Jesus is not just for our souls, it is good news for our physical selves. And one day our bodies will be resurrected and be just like Jesus's, full of power, removed from all of the effects of sin, all of these terrible ways that we feel about ourselves, still gendered, still sexed, but made new, holy and righteous, just like Jesus's. Friends, this is good news. This is hope for all of us, whether transgender or not whether confident in our bodies or secretly hating them, one day our bodies too will experience the salvation that our souls have begun to experience now. Praise God. Amen? Amen. So, what should our posture, church, be toward those who are experiencing gender dysphoria? To those who are transgender or non-binary, which means that they Um, would not identify with with either gender. What should our posture as the church be? I've got three things for you. Um, The first is this, to look at the heart. This is crucial. Um, I noticed when I was walking through the book of Mark this past month uh, that something that people said about Jesus was they said, Teacher, we know that you're true and that you do not look at people's faces. 
Jesus looked at the heart. He didn't care about the external so much as he cared about the heart. And so if the way that trans people dress makes you uncomfortable, or if the way that, that people look makes you uncomfortable, then I would just encourage you, lay that down. Don't worry about the externals. Don't worry about trying to clean people up on the outside. Look to the heart. That is where the transformation that, that Jesus wants to work in us begins. None of us came to Jesus looking good on the outside, but we can only come to him admitting our flaws and our failures. And he looks at the heart. So let's be like him. That's where the change begins. Second thing is this, um, to pursue relationship. It is more true now than ever that people will not hear the truth before they have felt known and loved and seen. Friends, we cannot argue anyone into the kingdom. Um, logic and rhetoric often don't work in these spheres, but love does. The Holy Spirit does. And Jesus spoke truth, but man, he did it with such grace and compassion for those who are suffering and beat up and on the margins of society. So let's pursue relationship with people before ever trying to preach at them. And then finally, number three, um, seek understanding. Seek understanding. For many of us, these concepts and people who struggle with these things feel far off and distant. I encourage you, don't let that be so. Um, I have been amazed at the amount of um, Bible-believing Christians who are experiencing these things, who are writing about these things, who are um, putting out podcasts and articles and books. We, we have found so much that's so beautiful and, and, and just like Jesus, full of grace and truth. So we've got some books for you in the lobby today. Um, if you'd like to purchase those, just that's at cost, just what we paid for them. Um, yeah, I'll be trying to stand out there and talk to you about those if, if you want to. Um, also on our resource page, orchardhillschurch.org slash resources, we've got a full list of even more books than we have out there, Amazon links, podcasts we've listened to, articles we've been reading, and we're going to keep adding to that page. So we encourage you to check that out. And then finally, um, friends, I think far too often, church has not been a place where people can come to struggle with these things. Um, this has not been a place that's safe to talk about these things. We have made it taboo and unacceptable, and we have pushed many people away. Um, and y'all, we want that to change. Uh, we want Orchard Hills to be a different kind of place. So, so many of you have experienced this church as a place to heal from your trauma and, and wounds of the past. But in this area of gender, is an area that we haven't been as, as comfortable or open to that or even just knowledgeable about it. And so we want to see that change. We want this to be a place where anyone and everyone can come to find hope and life and healing in Jesus. Now hear me, as, as your leaders, we remain more committed than ever to the truth, to God's design for our gender and sexuality. We are absolutely committed to that. We are not compromising on that because we know that God is good and right and he loves us and wants what is best for us. He designed us and he knows how we work best. But we are inviting you as a church to lean into grace, particularly in this area. Not to affirm that someone's brokenness is right or good, but to welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed us with all of our flaws, with all of our messes and brokenness, to welcome people in. 
to say, it's okay that you're not okay. I'm not okay either. But let's walk together to the one who is. The one who is perfect, perfectly whole, and wants to offer healing and wholeness to you. And man, if there's anyone here who has experienced any kind of gender dysphoria, who these things hit really close to home for, if you have been hurt and wounded and broken, maybe the church has been a big part of that wounding. And I would just like to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the hurt that's been caused on behalf of the church. Jesus doesn't want that for you. The compassion that he looks at all of us with and our failures and our brokenness is so great. There is compassion in his eyes when he looks at you. And so don't be afraid to share your story here. Um, we as staff people have been talking about these things a ton. We have grown in so much compassion in this area. So please, if you're struggling, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to hear your story and just get the chance to walk with you. I'd like to finish with a quote um, from Preston Sprinkle. He wrote this book. Uh, it's called Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Church and What the Bible Has to Say. Uh, he begins and ends it with testimonies from real people. Um, he is incredibly intelligent and covers way more than I've been able to cover this morning. But he offers that Christ-like blend of grace and truth uh, and deep compassion. So I highly commend that book to you. Uh, it's out in the lobby if you'd like to pick it up. Um, so I'll, I'll finish with this quote. Um, this is from near the end of his book. He says this, I'm constantly challenged by the grace-truth tension in Jesus. He had a high ethical standard, so high that nobody can live up to it. And yet Jesus loved those who fell short of it. Just look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus' sermon is one of the most ethically rigorous speeches in all of religious history. Try reading through the whole thing in the morning and then living that way for the day. You'll fail before breakfast. Jesus had a ridiculously high standard of obedience, and yet he excessively loved those who fell short of it. Jesus was not pro-tax collecting, but he loved tax collectors and they flocked to him. Jesus opposed adultery, but he stood up for adulterers, not their behavior, but their humanity. Jesus stood against sin, and yet sinners wanted to be in his presence. The marginalized, the hurting, the shamed, and the shunned, they all wanted to be around Jesus. They all wanted to go to his church. Do they want to go to yours? Do they want to go to ours? Do they want to be around you? Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the incredible compassion that you have on us. Lord, we confess and admit today that all of us are broken. All of us have some version of sexual trauma and woundedness and brokenness, and we need your healing. The world's offering a lot these days, and none of it works. Lord, we don't want to believe the lies, but we want to believe you. Lord Jesus, salvation is in you alone. Covering for our sin is in you alone. A peaceful, right relationship with our own bodies comes from you alone. So Lord Jesus, would you give it? Would you minister to us in this time? 
for everyone watching or listening, would you do your beautiful, gentle work of healing? Lord, if there's anyone uh, here who is struggling with some kind of pride um, and pushing back against uh, the things that we've been talking about or not wanting um, to show compassion, I pray that you would rebuke that in Jesus' name. Lord, that we'd see that the ground truly is level at the foot of the cross, that all of us are in need of you. And Lord, for those who are struggling and suffering in the ways that we've been talking about, would you lift their heads? Would they see in your eyes the mercy and the grace that you have to offer? Would they hear your voice saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, Lord Jesus, your way is the best way. Help us to follow you. We love you, Lord. Minister to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.